Hello, and welcome to the Nutri Mama podcast. Today we've got Professor Rosemary Green, who, and you call yourself Rosie, don't you actually? So Professor Rosie Green, who's joining us from London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which is my favourite university, even though I was only there for a year. It was amazing. And she works with Alan Dangle, who is possibly one of her favourite professors of all time. And her research focuses around sustainable diets and what we can do to improve not only our health, but also the health of the planet. So welcome, Rosie, and thank you so much for your time today. I'd love to hear just how you got into this field and like what your story is first. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's very nice to be chatting to you. Um, before we start, I should probably say that I'm not a professor. I'm an associate professor. So you can call <laughs> me Dr. Rosie Green. That's absolutely fine. Um, but I don't want to be starting to be claiming the, to be something that I'm not quite yet. Um, associate professor still is yes, still amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm an associate professor in, in climate change, nutrition and health or sustainability, nutrition and health. And so that means basically that I research the interactions between food and the environment and our health. Great. And so how did you get in? Like, what, what, why did you get into this field? What, what interested you most about it? I did my PhD in epidemiology. So I was always interested in diseases and the sort of the causes of disease and what happens throughout our lives. So I actually, my PhD was on the famine that occurred in the Channel Islands um, during the Second World War, uh, because there were children that were exposed to suddenly having a lot less food than they'd had before. And then those children grew into adults. And I was really interested to know that if that had an impact on their health in later life. So that got me really interested in food and the relationship between food and our health and how it's sometimes really complicated and how it can be a lifelong relationship like that. And then when I joined LSHTM after my PhD, there was an opportunity to do some research on the relationship between the environment and food and our health, which at the time was something that I'd never really considered. This was about 10 years ago. And I think we've learned so much in the last 10 years about the way food relates to climate change, particularly in high income countries, and that we really need to change what we're eating for environmental reasons, as well as our health. So I've just taken it from there, really. And I've started doing research in the UK towards how we could maybe change our diets in the UK and also in low and middle income countries where they're going to feel the effects of climate change in their food systems much more acutely than we are at the moment. And yeah, I'm now part of a really great team where we do research into all of these kinds of issues. That's amazing. That's so interesting. Your PhD sounds fascinating. So quite similar, I guess, to the Dutch hunger studies that were done um from yeah that's that's really that's really cool so actually just quickly touching on that I'd love to know from your PhD did you is there a specific time window in children's lives where being undernourished seems to have have a much bigger impact on their long-term health did you find that there was like a an age relationship or was it more of a the level of hunger was what had the worst impact what I found was actually really interesting because there is there's this sort of established body of research. There's the, you know, it's called the Barker hypothesis, where there's the idea that there's these really important windows in the development of children and babies where any kind of you know nutritional restriction can affect them in later life. And there is an effect, you know, that we know on the birth weight of children, and there was after the war where there were these really severe famines where children were born underweight, and that has obviously affected them later in life because birth weight can be 
an indicator of your later health. But what I found was slightly different because it was it was less of a period of famine because the Channel Islands had some protection and they had a bit more food than they did in some other countries in the war. And actually, I found that it was the teenagers that tended to suffer the most in later life. So the people that were exposed as teenagers and had this real calorie restriction so that maybe, you know, they weren't protected as much. The younger children were maybe protected a bit more and given a bit more food. But those teenagers then tended to have more problems with cardiovascular disease as adults in their later life when they then started eating more food again. So they were more prone to obesity. And that sort of feeds into the idea that, you know, if teenagers have a poor diet, it can affect the way they develop because it's a period of such intense growth mm. that, you know, it can uh, affect their metabolism, et cetera, in, in their later life. And I thought that was really interesting. That's really interesting. <laughs> and and actually, I, I didn't expect that. So teenagers' dietary needs and their nutritional needs are often overlooked. And actually, especially females, right? If we look at teenage girls, they're the ones who will could eventually be mothers if they wanted to. And then nutritional health is hard is often overlooked. And actually, it's so important to be, you know, very nutritionally balanced. Balance is the wrong word, but you know, very nutritionally healthy when you are of reproductive age. And anemia is such a big issue. So it's really interesting. That that's what you found and that actually the smaller children are more protected because naturally we would think to protect the little ones so when we look at children now teenagers now who often have really poor diets especially if they don't have access to healthy food we're basically in for a bit of a nightmare in the future with these these teenagers that's really interesting okay so then at LSHCM you got more into the environmental side of things and there's I've, there's so many questions that come up with this so um you know, there's questions around pesticides, there's questions around what sort of foods should we be eating? And then there's also questions around how do we raise a family that potentially follows these better guidelines for health? Uh, some people may have seen <laughs> my, my little list wake up at 4.30 today, so I'm really struggling. Um, the, the, the one where health they, diet. Planetary health diet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, trade. <laughs> yeah, so the planetary, the, some people may have seen the planetary health diet um, and they may think, how can they do that? How can they t- take that on for their own households? And I think there's a bit of confusion around what foods are okay to give children that are still can still be healthy for the planet. So maybe you can help us to understand what the best way forwards is. I think from pregnancy, actually. So personally, I find that um, through pregnancy, it's quite good to recommend that women can continue to eat eggs for instance and consume dairy products for their calcium content and of course there are non-animal sources of calcium but the absorption rate and the time it takes to make sure that you get enough can be quite time consuming I used to be vegan and when I fell pregnant I was like actually I'm just gonna start eating dairy again um can you just give us a bit of insight into you know what's a, a reasonable approach and what should we try and do to be to balance health benefits for ourselves and for our children but at the same time you know not destroy the planet with what we eat yeah i think the most important thing that i would want to stress from the research that we've been doing recently is that there are really clear win-win situations for health and for the environment so we know that for example in the uk We know that we have this eat well guide, uh, these recommendations that that show us 
what we should be eating for our health. And we're so far away from those on average at the moment that, you know, our diets are not doing us any good with the way that we're eating mostly at the moment. I think uh, a piece of research that we did recently found that less than 0.1% of people in the UK are actually following this Eat Well Guide dietary recommendations. So, I mean, the first really important thing, I think, is that you can make small changes to your diet to make make it healthier. And that will almost inevitably have a benefit for the environment as well, because we found that often the most healthy foods are the ones with less environmental impact as well. And that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing, that any small change that you make is going to be beneficial, probably. It doesn't, you don't have to suddenly become vegan in order to have a sustainable diet. Even the planetary health diet that you mentioned, it does contain small amounts of meat and dairy. It's not a completely plant-based diet. I mean, I think if people want to have a completely plant-based diet, that's absolutely brilliant, but it might not be achievable or sensible for everybody to do. Um, So I think that's really important to remember is that if you're thinking about making healthy choices, that is going to naturally tend to be more sustainable as well, which is great. And that's going to be the same for your children and for yourself in pregnancy as well. So I would say that, you know, it's it's sensible to try and eat as diverse a diet as possible. The more fruit and vegetables you can eat, the better, because not only will you be getting all of the essential vitamins and minerals from those foods, but you'll be more full. So you'll want to eat less of the other foods that might not necessarily be quite so good for you or for the planet. So always, I would say more fruit and veg is a, is a great idea. And it is a good idea to try and reduce the amount of meat and dairy that you eat if you can, Mm -hmm. but also exactly as you said, you know, in pregnancy and also if you were breastfeeding, for example, Mm -hmm. you need a lot of energy at those times in your life. And if particularly if you're not used to eating a more plant-based diet, it can sometimes be difficult to find all of that energy from purely plant-based foods. So I think a sensible approach is is a very good idea. Yeah, that's always the way. I think I think what you mentioned about adding food. So I always find that actually, if you try and adopt a, a mindset where you're adding vegetables to your diet, you're adding pulses, you're adding fruit, then you automatically displace things like cereal bars or cake <laughs> because you just won't be as hungry. So I, I think there's a bit of psychology to at play here because if you try and deny yourself foods and you say okay right from today I'm not going to buy any more processed foods whatsoever then of course you haven't replaced them with anything yet so it's just going to be a difficult situation whereas gradually adding more vegetables adding more fruits adding more beneficial foods both for us for our own health but also as you said for the, for the planet's health automatically displaces the rest and then of course it's probably a good idea. A lot of us now are doing our weekly shops in a much more mindful way because of the pandemic. So you maybe go once a week or you do your shopping online. Um, in that situation, perhaps it's a good idea to just remove some of the products that we know are ultra high processed. And coming on to that, what is the evidence around uh, processed foods and ultra high processed foods and how that has an impact on the environment, even if they are sort of vegan? Um, you know, does the processing itself pose a problem? 
That's a slightly tricky one. And there's some there's some conflicting evidence out there on that. So one of the things that can potentially not be such a win win situation for environment and health can be in those over processed foods. So, for example, refined sugar has a relatively low environmental impact compared to quite a lot of foods. because It's quite easy to grow and you can you can produce it from different sources, etc. Like, you know, we grow sugar beet in the UK and it's pretty easy for us to make a lot of sugar. So the impact on the environment is not so large as, for example, meat or dairy might be. But the processing does have an impact. Um, and so it's never going to be quite as good as, you know, whole fruits and vegetables. But there is also, you know, there's a question of how you store your food and how much of it is wasted. And of course, there are issues with particularly fresh fruits and vegetables that people are trying to buy them and eat them more. And then they're being wasted because they don't have the ability to keep and store them and sometimes they don't have the time to cook them so I think there is a place for not necessarily for ultra processed food but for things like tinned fruits and vegetables and frozen fruits and vegetables and that you know people should aware, be aware that it doesn't necessarily always have to be fresh fresh is great but if that doesn't work for you then the the content is often more important than the delivery system if you see what I mean I think yeah um, of course. yeah I mean high fat high sugar ultra processed foods are never going to be the best choice because I mean they don't satiate you as well so you'll stay more hungry and then you'll eat more food because you haven't been properly satisfied and then you know the impacts of that on the planet as well as your health can build up but yeah I think not all foods that are not fresh are necessarily a terrible thing okay so I think I think yeah I I definitely think that having things like tinned beans and tinned lentils especially if they're tinned in water um so helpful to be able to just store them and the dried ones are great too of course but you have to soak them and stuff so it takes way more planning um so there's definitely space for tinned foods and as you said frozen fruits even we tend to have frozen fruits in my freezer and I, I'll make up a uh, sort of yogurt smoothie for the girls for a snack um, and that's also better than for instance buying store-bought well, now I'd like to look more at the planetary side um, there's some really interesting research talks about the importance of grazing cattle and grazing animals to to maintain soil health right so soil health is something that's really interesting and it's quite new in terms of obviously there's been research on it for years and years but it's coming to the fore now uh the importance of maintaining healthy soil and nitrogen fixation and that again pulses it's so great great for that but i'm interested to know in your experience in your in your sort of research what is the thing that is really driving or, or maybe it's not one thing let's say the top three things that are really driving our planetary health into disarray by our eating habits so you know of course I'm thinking like eating meat is it eating meat is it the food wastage there's so many things at play and and then the counter arguments of well we need cows to graze so that then the soil can keep fertile so is there is there some is there sort of um a trade-off or, or, or is there so, something at play there where it's not so much the cow but it's the how we're growing the cow <laughs> that's the issue so I'd, I'd love to know more about the planetary health side and what your research has shown yeah so I mean yeah you, I mean you've put your finger on a large part of it I think which is that the amount of livestock on the planet at the moment is going to be very difficult to sustain 
And it's not even just the fact that the current numbers of livestock we have are really degrading our natural systems, but it's the fact that the demand is still going up. So in many countries in the world, the demand for meat and dairy is still increasing, um, whereas in this country, it's not so much. So it is, it's a huge problem for the future. And soil degradation, as you've said, is another problem. And that's partly because of our massive overuse of fertilizers in many areas of the world, which is stripping the soil of its nutrients. Um, and again, it's partly because of our use of monocultures and the fact that we're not mixing up our, our crops enough. And we are spoiling the biodiversity, not only of the soil, but of the land and the water disrupting a lot of natural systems by by those things whether there's a place for livestock in a sustainable food system there I know there are some widely differing views on that Mm. and regenerative agriculture there's a huge amount of research into that coming out at the moment so you know agricultural processes where you can actually improve the condition of the soil by sensible use of the manure from your livestock etc and by grazing and by improving the health of the soil that way I think it's uh, this is a personal view from from what I've read and understand for me it's difficult to conceive of a world entirely without livestock at the moment because they do fulfill those functions and they do provide an important source of putting nitrogen back into the soil um, and they can be part of regenerative systems But that's a very long way from where we are at the moment. And I think you'd be very hard pressed to argue that intensive animal agriculture, so factory farming, for example, of livestock, you'd be very hard pressed to argue that that's providing anything positive in terms of, you know, soil health or or biodiversity at a larger level. So, yes, I mean, I think some livestock can be a beneficial thing for the planet and can improve uh, the the state of our biodiversity. But we're a very long way from that at the moment. And I find it hard to see how we would get there with the types of animal agriculture that we're mostly doing at the moment. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting because the regenerative farming and this idea that grazing cattle can actually really help soil health. So when you hear of grass-fed cattle who just roam the pastures and actually the UK is quite good for that yeah we've actually got quite a lot of that going on so that kind of leads me on to on to thinking is it about choosing where our meat comes from on the other side of the meat argument is the fact that actually eating too much meat isn't very good for us um, in terms of health outcomes and there's a lot of debate about that too but essentially large population studies show that the likelihood of a lot of meat being good for us is is not very high. Um, of course, everybody has differing metabolisms. Everybody's microbiomes react differently to meat eating. And there's some people out there who will be vitamin B12 and iron deficient, and actually a good steak will be great for them. <laughs> but if we're trying to be sensible and we're going, we're going to eat a little bit of meat every sort of week, we'll have, say, a portion of red meat, perhaps, and a portion, and a portion again it's it's not actually a large amount when you actually look at what a portion should be so a little bit of red meat a little bit of chicken perhaps is the real thing that people should look out for especially now with brexit which is going to leave us open to importing meat from a lot of different places that don't have as high welfare standards as we do should we be really looking out for what kind of meat we're consuming so we could be helping the soil in the uk and 
actually helping the soil elsewhere by not buying cheap factory farmed meat could so could buying a nice piece of meat from a grass-fed cow i'm not sure about chickens i don't know how many free roaming chicken farms there are in the uk i haven't looked into that but i'm sure that even just trying to buy an organic a free-range chicken option might be better Would, would i be right in thinking that yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for this idea of they call it less and better. So less meat, but meat of better quality. And that you can see immediately can have benefits across the board. So the meat will taste better because it's, you know, it's not been produced in such grim conditions. It will have fewer antibiotics in it. It will have less water added to it to, to bump up the weight it's better for animal welfare standards because those animals will have been produced in much less crowded and horrendous conditions. And it's got the potential to be better for the environment as well, because it's much more likely to be part of a natural system. So I, I mean, I think with meat in particular, maybe, maybe dairy is slightly different, but particularly with meat, people in the UK and other countries have got really used to this idea that there should be meat with everything, but it's mm. kind of this default setting. And so if you get a sandwich, it will probably have chicken in it. And if you get a ready meal, it will probably have chicken or beef in it. And we don't really think about the fact that that's meat and we don't really taste it. And we don't really care a lot of the time if it's good quality or not. And actually, historically, that's not what we used to do. Meat used to be a treat and it used to be eked out and used properly. And I think if lots of people could go back to thinking thinking about it a bit more like that, then if the meat you do buy is, is more expensive, which it will be if it's produced in better conditions, then at least you'll be really tasting and appreciating that meat. So, you know, for example, if you buy an organic chicken, that is a lot more expensive than a sort of factory farmed chicken. But buying organic is one way to at least ensure higher standards of animal welfare, because you know that those animals have really restricted use of antibiotics, etc. And so they have to be raised in better conditions. And that chicken can last you for a week for a family. It's something that we do occasionally because my family still eats a little bit of meat. Not very often, but sometimes. So you roast your chicken and you have it for Sunday lunch and then you have chicken sandwiches and then you make a chicken curry and then you make a chicken soup. And that's the chicken has lasted you for a really long time. And it's a really nice tasting kind of meat. And then you are still spending the same amount you would be if you were also buying your chicken sandwich and buying your chicken soup, et cetera. But yeah. you're trying to waste a bit less. So That's exactly what we do in our household, actually. I, I tend to buy a chicken maybe every other week and I'll make a big Sunday roast and then, you know, the the leftovers get eaten. I actually don't eat meat still, but um, my husband will eat them and the girls eat it and then there'll be chicken sandwiches, he said, or a salad and the carcass makes a really good chicken broth. <laughs> so, yeah, it goes a really long way. Thinking on a, on a wider scale. So I think and at an individual level, if we can all choose to, as you said, Think of meat as a as a as a treat, not as a necessity staple for every meal. I know that in my um, in my lifetime, I've known people who genuinely don't think a meal is complete unless there is a piece of meat on the plate, and I've always found that to be quite interesting. I'm I'm Italian, so for me, it's harder to conceive of a meal without uh, pasta or bread than it is to conceive of a meal without meat. And of course, having been vegan. I got really used to not having any meat whatsoever. I guess I, what I'm trying to say is if we can get our heads around the idea that chicken or beef or, you know, just the occasional piece of meat should be a treat. And, it, and if you can get it from um, 
a reputable butcher who gets it from a reputable farmer, that's even better. But of course, I don't want this to be something that's exclusively for those who can afford to do that. So what's an I think an important consideration here is it might be easy for us to say, you know, yeah, well, we will get a nice big organic chicken and it will last a week for the family. That's really great. But actually, when the market does get flooded with cheap meat and you have a family to feed and maybe you have like three hungry boys at home and actually nothing fills them up quite like meat. How do we how do we kind of protect the welfare of the planet and of those families with the policies that we have in place. So this is going a little bit left field here, but I think it's important to understand that individual choice is a big part of it, but there's got to be action surrounding that individual choice that makes the individual choice possible. So what, what do you think that the government could do or what do you think that supermarkets could do even to just try and encourage people to think slightly differently about meat yeah I think it slightly comes back to what we were talking about earlier which is to do with making other alternatives better as well Mm. because I think you're absolutely right in what you've said about the cheap meat that that will potentially be coming and you can already see it you know there's in the lot of fast food outlets it's so cheap to buy meat it's just it's the cheapest option there is to get a bucket of chicken or whatever and I know plenty of people that are really struggling financially that that is the best option for them to feed their family at the moment and it shouldn't be that's crazy because it's not doing them any good and it's not healthy for their children and it's going to create more problems down the line so we have to try and change it and I mean one of the answers has to be price I think it's not an easy solution to say that meat should be made more expensive but if you think about making other foods cheaper and easier to obtain and easier to cook then that does shift what the fast food retailers are likely to do it shifts what the supermarkets are likely to do it sort of shifts everything towards this idea that we could incentivize people to buy healthier foods at a cheaper price Um, but they also have to be easy to prepare. You know, I know plenty of people that don't have a kitchen, like they just have a a flat top hob or a microwave or whatever. That's the only way they have to prepare food. So it's got to be also made available in a form that, that is accessible to everybody because not everybody can spend all day chopping and and boiling vegetables and making their own curry and things like that. Um, but I think price has to be an important part of it. And education has to be an important part of it as well. We need to get back to the idea of understanding where food comes from and what it means for us and how important it is for our kids. Um, So we've, for example, we've just done some work with some stakeholders across the food system, talking to them about what we should do to try and change people's diets. And also I was part of the Climate Assembly last year when we were talking to people about getting the UK to net zero. And this is people from all walks of life. And one of the huge things that struck me is that people are so supportive of farmers in this country. Mm. They really want to protect farmers and farming is really seen as a valued thing. And, you know, these people are making our food, but we understand that they're having a really difficult time and that Brexit's making things really difficult for them. And people want to be supportive. They want to know that they can get food from a British farmer that's, you know, that's doing a good job and producing food in a sort of nice and sustainable way but at the moment that's not made easy for them at all and it's often really hard to even understand where the food comes from you know if you buy a pizza with chicken on it 
that chicken will have come from Thailand, but it's not obvious to find that out. People don't really have any awareness of that. So I think we need to make all of that a bit more transparent somehow and, and help people to have that connection with farmers that they used to have. But it's just kind of, it's been broken apart from for some quite privileged people that can get to go to farmers markets and get all of their yeah, nice exactly. organic vegetables and stuff. That it's basically to a tourist attraction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You're, that, you're so, you're so right. The other day I um, bought some, I can't remember, it was a cat cashews or something. And I, I looked at the back and I said, well, I wonder where these are from. And they were organic and all this. And it was like, you know, a product of Cambodia or something. And I just thought, crikey, that's really far. <laughs> so actually, my understanding is that if we can buy local, and of course, cashews are not grown in the UK. So let me just preface that. I, I do know that. Um, but sh- if we can buy locally, if, if there are products and we can eat seasonally, is that something that in your research has come up as being good for overall planetary health? Or is that actually not as big a deal? Like how bad um, is it for the environment when we are importing, for instance, I've seen strawberries in the supermarket. It is not strawberry season. Um, they are from Egypt. They are from Morocco. And how do we strike a balance between accessing a variety of fruits and vegetables, but living in a country where, let's be honest, the weather <laughs> restricts some of the growth of these fruits and vegetables? And and is it bad to be eating strawberries from Egypt right now? Or is that actually contributing to the economy that helps Egypt for instance their their farmers or you know what's how do we strike a balance that I I don't know enough about that and my uh, I try to buy seasonally and I try to buy locally purely because it means I change up what I what I cook and what I make so it automatically adds diversity because as the seasons change you have to change your ingredients (laughs) Um, but I'd like to hear from you about whether how important that is actually yeah I mean I think there's two things so it's in terms of fruit and vegetables, the impact of fruit and vegetables on the environment mostly is so much less than the impact of, of, of meat and dairy on the environment. But it doesn't make too much difference if you're getting your fruit and veg from, from, for example, Europe compared to from the UK. If it's coming from Latin America and it's being air freighted over, then yes, that's probably not great. Um, and also the other thing is it's not going to taste as good. So the strawberries that you get from Morocco or wherever are not going to taste as good as British strawberries do in June because they are so fresh and they're in season. And I'm sure you've discovered in your seasonal eating that stuff just tastes better when it's in season. That's It doesn't taste the same all, all year round. So, so that's one thing. But the other thing that's going to be important is that climate change is here. Climate change is happening. Just because it's not happening so much in the UK right now doesn't mean that it's not happening elsewhere in the world. And harvests are being disrupted already. And that's going to get a lot worse over the next 10, 20 years. And so for a country like the UK, where we actually import around 80% of our fruit and more than half of our vegetables, that's going to be a problem (laughs) because the countries that are producing our fruits and vegetables at the moment are going to really start to be devastated by the impact of climate change. And actually, as as the UK, our agriculture is likely to, in the shorter term, at least to slightly benefit from climate change. So what we really should be doing is growing more of the things that we can grow in the UK, which will have a lower environmental impact than if we're importing them, and will also be more sustainable for the future, because 
as we all know, we live in a country where it rains all the time. Um, and it's actually a good place to be growing lots of fruit and vegetables. Whereas at the moment, we're importing a lot of them from countries where it doesn't rain. And so they're irrigating those same foods that we could be growing under natural rainfall here. So it's key to have a diverse diet. And, and for that, we will always need to import food because we're the UK and we don't produce enough food to feed our own population. And that's fine. But to think about the future and what's going to happen under climate change and what we can do that's a bit more sustainable, I think is important. And I think it's brilliant that during the lockdown, loads more people have been on their allotments and they've been experimenting with growing food and people's kids have been growing tomatoes and getting really into it. And that's the sort of thing that we need to be thinking about. That's like, oh, what do we grow in this country? What grows really well? What's an easy way of, of making food that will help us to, to understand those connections a bit more, I think. Could we, could we, could the UK as a country grow their own food? So could we ever be self-sustained in theory? We haven't been for, a re- for a, I think, nearly 100 years or possibly even more than 100 years. So I think it would be very, very difficult for us to ever be self-sufficient. We have the ability to grow more food than we do now. So, for example, with fruit and vegetables, I think only around 2% of our land is devoted to growing fruit and vegetables. It's a really tiny amount. So we could do more of that. I think it would be very difficult for us to grow everything. Yeah, um, So, but we could, we could encourage, you know, well, support our farmers who already do grow fruits and vegetables here and maybe encourage more people to go into that. But, of course, it has to be attractive. It has to be made. So it has to be supported by the government and by subsidies for that for that to take place actually but that is I you know it's it's funny because I don't know when hearing you say that even though I've read about this and I, I've got I've got some idea but it, even when you say it I'm like gosh it's, we import so much <laughs> we actually depend on our neighbours way more than most would, would even know about so that's really interesting and how about grains I'm thinking you know we so much bread is consumed in the UK and we can see more sorts of rice as well. It's huge. It's a huge staple here. Do we import all of our grains? Do we grow any grains in the UK? We grow a lot of wheat. We grow okay. we grow enough wheat to feed ourselves, actually. And I think we're slightly a net exporter of, of wheat most wow. years. So we grow a lot of wheat and it grows well in this country. And that's probably going to continue as, as the climate starts to change. Mm-hmm. So anything that we make from wheat is is a thing that we can easily produce quite easily. Obviously, we don't we don't grow any rice, and that's not likely to start anytime no. soon. So we do import quite a lot of rice, but we also grow a lot of oats. Which I mean, I'm sure you've seen and are aware of the fact that lots and lots of people are now switching to oat milk, and that's a great yeah. thing to grow in this country because oats grow brilliantly. So that's a really I love nice... a good oat. Me too. Oats are so good. <laughs> I have oat milk with oat porridge. <laughs> exactly what I had for breakfast this morning. <laughs> um, oats are wonderful. I love them. Although the oh, in funny that we use oatly, and of course that's Swedish, isn't it? And actually, because of Brexit, there's been like oatly shortages near where we live, so in North London, and <laughs> and it's you go to the supermarkets and like the oatly's disappeared, and I'm like, God, what are we gonna do? Uh, it's so it just it's just funny how how these things get pick up and become popular and then again import food imports and exports I think as climate change worsens you know how can we make sure that what we're doing here in the UK and we are you're right we're really lucky because the UK being where it is we are going to be 
fairly shielded from the effects of climate change for quite some time. So it's easy for us to be like, oh, it's not that hot. You know, it's still raining over here. But it's the other countries that are sort of closer to the edge, if you will, <laughs> closer and closer to the equator, they're really going to be affected. And how how is our food wastage? How is our carbon consumption? How is all of that contributing to countries that are so far from us? So can we take can our changes in diet? can we really make an impact on those populations that are so far removed from us in so many ways, but of course are actually the countries that are growing our food for us and they are part of our world. So they're, they're on the same planet as us. How can we, how, is it, do we, is what we're doing really going to help them? Does it actually make an impact? Yeah. I mean, I think the short answer to that is yes, it really does. I mean, there was, there was a scientific paper released a few weeks ago showing that, as a world, we can't meet the Paris Agreement targets um, for climate change without changing our diets. And that means us changing diets in rich countries, essentially, because people's diets in Africa are not the problem. <laughs> it's our diet that's the problem. Um, and so if we can meet our own net zero targets, which is going to involve reducing our meat and dairy consumption, actually by only around 20% to, to meet the sort of least stringent targets. It's not huge, um, but obviously the, the more we can reduce, the better. If we can meet those targets, we are helping to protect those countries which are growing our food um, from the worst excesses of climate change. So that's huge, actually, um, that any little changes we can make can have an impact on, on the amount of devastation that other countries are going to face and I think also because we are responsible for a huge amount of climate change and we are not as you said going to feel the worst effects of it those are going to be felt by other countries first it's you know it's kind of our responsibility to show that we can change our behavior um, and other countries do tend to follow where we have led so for example if we can reduce and show that you know healthy diets and more plant-based diets are desirable in higher income countries that does have an impact on what the demand is in other countries as well so no, I think it's really important for us to do that and show that kind of behavior. I think of McDonald's as something that's perhaps not the best idea to consume every day you know it's a, it's a really celebrated brand in some parts of the world so you're right if we can lead the way and saying actually you know the wonderful foods that you were eating before we brought you this stuff <laughs> are <laughs> way better for your health but also for the overall health of the planet and the global population then we'd be doing we're doing everybody a favor really I'd like to know from you Rosie since you're a mom and you've got how many kids do you have I have two boys Two boys. Okay, so we're talking about the three hungry boys you, you and you. <laughs> so you're a mum with two boys and you, of, of course, you're in this research every day. So you're probably one of the most aware people um, of what you sort of have at home in terms of food. What are your top tips? What are your things that you try to stick to on a regular basis? And how old are your boys, if you don't mind me asking? Are they sort of... Five and three oh okay great so you've done the week you've done the weeding you've done the toddler stage they're eating yeah. and I'd, I'd love to know from you that's great actually because you've done it all <laughs> um <laughs> I'd love to know from you like how what your top tips are and 
how you manage to make your boys love that sort of food that's really good for them but also good for the planet and do you do anything to educate them around how the food they eat impacts the planet I'd love to hear more just of a personal um, experience sure yeah well I mean I guess the first thing to say is that (laughs) I really get that it can sometimes be really difficult to get your kids to eat first of all anything never mind what you actually want them to be eating so yeah I'm really aware of the fact that particularly parents can listen to all this advice about food and go oh my god I can't do that you know it's hard enough to get out of the house in the morning to get anything into them at all like how do you expect me to to provide a nutritionally balanced plant-based diet like that's just not possible so I completely am aware of, (laughs) of that side of things um but for me it's been mostly about variety and not making things a chore so I you know I I did um what they call baby led weaning with both of my children and I just gave them food to play with and it was vegetables first and then it was fruit and that was the stuff that we did first and they would just make a big mess with the food and splat it into their own faces and and all the rest of it um but they got used to the idea of like the texture of fruit and vegetables and the taste of different fruit and vegetables before anything else um and now that we're past that stage I just try and make sure to give them as much variety of stuff as possible and as I mentioned earlier you know we we don't do the thing where it's like a meat and two veg meal we just we concentrate on you know what type of food they're going to have whether there's necessarily meat with it so sometimes they have meat sometimes they don't sometimes they have dairy and sometimes they don't it's just a sort of a real mix of different things and we try and do a lot of food science type stuff at home oh. as well. So particularly in the lockdown when they've been at home, we've done, we do a lot of, we play the sinking or floating game with food. So we get a big bowl of water and we guess what foods are going to float or sink. And then we talk about why they float and sink and what they're made of. And then they eat them obviously. And yeah. it's, we play a lot of games with food and we, we grow stuff on our windowsill, you know, we seeds out of the tomatoes that we've eaten and then we plant them in the ground and we see what grows. And we just do a lot of stuff around making food, not horrible and not mm-hmm. something that is a threat. <laughs> That's what we try and do. That's brilliant. I, I've never tried to put the seeds from my tomato. That's actually obvious, but I just eat <laughs> eat everything. So I've got two guards. One of them is three and the other one's just turned nine months. And the three-year-old didn't have any meat until she was two. I just, because I wasn't eating meat. So I just gave her fish. She ate fish and she ate eggs. I mean, eggs are actually probably a cornerstone of her diet. She adores eggs. <laughs> and of course, the little one is just a better eater. It's interesting how the characters are so different. So um, the the little one will eat anything. She adores beans. She picks them up and just shoves them in any any kind of bean, lentils. And I think I my approach is similar to you in that I just fruits and vegetables first, and then slowly introduce. um, I actually introduced eggs with both of them early on, just partly for the allergy, but also because I'm a big fan of eggs and they are just genuinely such nutritional powerhouse <laughs> um so though I, I I buy them mostly for the girls I try to reduce the amount of eggs that I eat and my husband but um try and get high welfare eggs it is difficult to strike the balance as a parent I think but uh but this idea of playing with food even more I mean crikey we've had 
lentil parties or there's been like red spit lentils all over the kitchen and my daughter my older daughter loves playing with oats she'll just take out the oats and she'll make it snow and everything the idea of playing with food I think is really helpful and I think it's it's really good for them to know what a food looks like in its entirety because as you said earlier we've become removed from where our food comes from so if you get a pizza with chicken on it the chickens from Thailand the, the tomato sauce most people probably wouldn't even think about the fact that tomatoes made that sauce you know so having yeah. the the whole food I like this thing called swim game that sounds fun not swim float <laughs> that would be weird <laughs> yeah so I think it's just it's just good to hear that as a parent as you said like you can't get it right every time but do you find that you try when you buy your shopping you just try and get food into the house which is organic if possible local if possible and potentially just a very uh, plant-based with the odd bit of meat and and animal product for the kids and for yourselves as well I guess yeah that's pretty much the way I do it so yeah we we switch it up and they do have bits of everything um particularly now because one of my children actually had a cow's milk protein allergy when he was a baby and that was a nutritional nightmare because to try and get him everything that he could without any milk or dairy was was very difficult so these days I try and be quite flexible about it and uh and I do the same with the school meals obviously my older son now has school meals and so sometimes I give him the vegetarian option and sometimes I give him the meat option and he doesn't really notice the difference Mm. um but when I'm buying the food yeah I try and so I try and go for variety and I do try and go for seasonal stuff when we can and I guess I'm just, I mean, I don't go to the supermarket at the moment because I don't leave my house really. But um, yeah. when I'm looking at buying stuff, the shopping online, I, sometimes I'll just have a bit of a browse around and I'll think, oh, that looks interesting. So, you know, you might come across something like a kohlrabi if that's in season or whatever. Yeah. Like, well, that kind of looks like an alien. My kids would probably like to take a look at that. And then I sort of show it to them yeah. and uh, and we'll be like, oh, what? so what do you think we could cook with that and I you know I do some stir fries and stuff sometimes and my son will say oh could you could you cook that and we'll see what it's like and often they don't like it and Mm. then I will eat it because I hate wasting food um but uh sometimes they do and then you've got something else in your repertoire yeah exactly we we had celeriac for that this season I was like (laughs) this winter I was like celeriac I don't remember last time I had celeriac and I just (laughs) I was like, well, it's in season and it's a vegetable and let's go. <laughs> and so I bought it there and I, I had to really Google. I was like, well, how do I, what do I do with this? <laughs> it's a very odd looking vegetable. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think, yeah, it's good. You're right. I think I think remembering to have fun with food and to be uh, curious and, and just expose ourselves. I, I, as adults as well, just really like go out, get out of our comfort zone and make something different. Cause especially, gosh, lockdown has been the worst for just, oh god I've got to cook again like how many meals are like oh, am I gonna cook this yeah it's just I just can't be bothered a lot of the days so changing it up a little bit by telling yourselves you know, oh I'm gonna make something different helps I think on that on that level as well so last question for you Rosie thank you so much for today it's been amazing um if somebody can't listen to this talk and they're really really like they love their animal products they eat eggs and bacon for breakfast they eat chicken sandwiches for lunch and their dinner consists of beef or sausage and mash or and they drink milk with their tea and they love to put cheese on everything okay if you had to choose a a, an animal product which is actually the one to reduce the most from your research is it dairy is it the eggs and the chicken or eggs separately to chickens I don't know which one it is but yeah or is it the 
the cows, the pigs, the larger animals that are more often factory farmed in that sense. What is the thing to reduce first and most? Well, you've basically just described my husband when we got married. So <laughs> I, have some, I have some familiarity with this. And actually, you wouldn't believe how far his diet has changed since then. I mean, his, uh, my in-laws are farmers and they're you know very keen on the meat and the dairy and all the rest of it. So, um, But in the last seven years, his, his diet has changed radically, but it's changed very, very slowly, one little bit at a time. So... I mean, that's a really good example for how how people can do it, basically, because he's, you know, he's still perfectly happy. He still he eats a lot more exciting foods than he used to, actually. But he does still eat meat and dairy. So I would say if you want to get like the biggest bang for your buck, I guess, in terms of your own health and also the environment, probably swapping your processed red meat for something else would be the place to start, because processed red meat is not good for your health you know it is officially classified as carcinogenic now it's you know it's got links to to ill health Um, and just to just to clarify what can you give me an example of processed red meat so that would be burgers with you know preservatives and salt and things added i mean if you make your own burgers from from fresh minced beef then that's not so bad but anything like burgers beef sausages kebabs um that kind of stuff where it's you know it's 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 red meat but something's been done to it essentially to to uh, ready-made lasagna ready-made that you put in the microwave that sort of thing okay great that kind of stuff yeah so that's that stuff is we know it's not good for your health and also it's probably got the highest environmental impact of any food so if you can switch those for something different um and even if that's the only change you make it's probably going to make quite a big difference to to not only the planet but also your health and also there are lots of different things that you can substitute those foods for so you know some people like corn or or other meat replacements i discovered that i really like lentils and beans as a replacement for Mm. for beef because they've got a similar sort of texture to that kind of stuff so you know try a three bean chili instead of a, a a meat chili and see how you get on would be my advice Great, thank you. That's really good to know. Um, well, thank you so much for today. It's been such a pleasure, and um, I hope that you know, I hope that people listening to this can take some practical stuff away, as well as like a better understanding of just how much of an impact our diets here in the UK can have on global health and planetary health, and also have a, maybe a little think about where our food's coming from um, before we eat it. And uh, I hope keep keep up the good work you, you you published so much I was like I was having a quick break I was like wow this, you have published so much interesting stuff and um some of your work has been cited hundreds of times which is so ex- well if you're an academic that's really cool <laughs> so I, I really I'm looking forward to seeing like what you publish next and and where the planetary health group at LSHTM goes to next because you guys are expanding now aren't you and you've yeah. starting a master's which is really cool is that still happening yeah watch this space I would say on that we yeah we want to be able to to train the next generation of of health scientists in stuff to do with climate change and planetary health because we think it's going to be one of the most important health challenges of the future so we're going to see what we can do about that 
I might just do one more degree <laughs> that comes out. Do I not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a nice you. day. <laughs> Bye, Rosie. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that useful and I hope that you'll join me again for the next episode of Nutrimamas Ask the Experts. Mm-hmm.